Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. Let's go over some quick housekeeping. So a week ago, maybe almost two weeks now, I did that Kenobi review, and I know that might not have been everyone's cup of tea, especially since this is primarily an atheist podcast, where I cover news stories involving religion, etc., from a secular perspective. But once in a while, I like doing uh, movie or TV reviews, that kind of thing. And I just wanted to quickly let people know that I found some errors while working on the YouTube version of that episode. So I addressed them in the video version and exported the audio, then replaced the original audio file in the podcast feed. So if you're interested, you can delete the original version of the episode and re-download it from the feed, and you should have the newer edited version. I also offer my thoughts on the fifth episode of Kenobi in that edited version as well. And I'll quickly give in to temptation and mention that I recently watched the finale. It had its issues, but had some really great moments as well. Um, you know, Vader gets his mask, you know, cracked open. We get to see Hayden Christensen's uh, face underneath and some really meaningful dialogue between Vader and Obi-Wan. Um, that's, that scene was absolutely great. Anyway, I'll, I'll uh, prevent myself from fully nerding out and going on a... Uh, going off on a tangent. Okay, and then I had a couple of minor corrections or clarifications regarding the Valpurgis Night episode. This is just a little thing, hopefully, but I said Sankt Valpurgis Nacht, when in German I believe the S should be pronounced as a Z, so Sankt Valpurgis Nacht. Um, I'm probably still butchering it, but hopefully that's somewhat closer. Then, and this gets a little tricky, it may have sounded like I was suggesting that Bald Mountain is kind of a mythical region or location in Slavic folklore, which it is, but Lisa Hora, um, and no, I didn't just call Lisa a whore, which means... That's awful, which means barren, bald, or featureless mountain, is a real location in Ukraine, and it's thought to be at least one of several candidates. There's other mountains in Eastern Europe as well that could have been the inspiration for the bald mountain of legend. Oh, and then a while back I'd issued a correction because in passing I characterized Thomas Paine as being an atheist when technically he was a deist. Well, I re-release that special I did a long time ago entitled The Founding Fathers on Religion in their own words. And in his own words, Thomas Paine clearly refers to himself as a deist. Kind of scary that I forgot that after all that researching and putting the episode together. But such is the nature of human memory, I guess, or at least my memory. In fairness, he was hypercritical of religion, including or especially Christianity, and was often accused of being an atheist, so that could have colored my perception. Okay, and so next I might give a quick medical update. I think it may have been almost three months ago now, I'm not sure. But you may remember, if you're a regular listener, that I mentioned switching medications and experiencing what I thought was serotonin syndrome or some kind of drug interaction, my doctors seemed to think the same to some degree. Out of the blue, I was seized by this brutal anxiety. And it wasn't like the social anxiety I used to wrestle with when I was younger and probably still do, you know, a bit, to be honest. It was more like this full body, really physical, acute state of agitation, 
uh, where I was constantly pacing like a caged animal, couldn't get to sleep without medication, and couldn't even stand the sound of television. It felt like I was constantly crawling out of my own skin. Definitely not a good situation. And because I had never experienced anything like that before, and because it started right when I was attempting to switch antidepressants, I assumed it must have been a drug interaction. But in retrospect, it seems unlikely that it was serotonin syndrome or anything like that. It seems more the case that probably, you know, switching medications just left an opening for the worst anxiety and depression I have ever experienced in my life. And it was humbling or eye-opening in a way. Long-time listeners will know that I've spoken ad nauseum over the years about my chronic migraines and the medications I take for them. And I've always been honest, or at least I've tried to be honest, about my history with depression and anxiety too. But I think I've always tended to underestimate or downplay the severity of those mood disorders in my own case. As I just mentioned, I used to, and maybe still do to some degree once again, wrestle with some moderate social anxiety, and I've also long wrestled with a certain degree of depression that I would probably also characterize as moderate, uh, you know, low uh, dysphoric moods, nagging negative thoughts, but nothing in my, you know, layman's opinion approaching serious clinical depression uh, but that anxiety or agitation, um, that acute anxiety or agitation I was experiencing recently, mixed in with it or hidden under it, was the blackest depression I've ever experienced or faced in my life. And it eventually came to the surface, and I experienced some of the you know major textbook symptoms of clinical depression, this dark, all-consuming feeling of hopelessness or despair, existential dread, loss of interest in pretty much everything, uh, loss of appetite. Uh, and I know this is probably getting pretty depressing, no pun intended, but between the extreme anxiety and this deep depression, it was a horrific state to be in. But the good news is I'm up to 20 milligrams of Lexapro and it's helped immensely. I briefly tried Lexapro a year or so ago, but didn't stay on it, you know, for long. Because at the time, my main concern was my headaches and it didn't seem to do much for them. For the most part, my main reason for taking antidepressants has been to treat my chronic headaches. But this time, and my doctor agreed, the main concern or goal was to effectively treat this severe anxiety and depression. And I guess from what I've read, Lexapro is one of the better drugs for treating major forms of depression, and it helps anxiety too. I've reached the point where I can actually fall asleep without gobbling anti-anxiety meds, and for the most part, the despair has lifted. I can feel the anxiety and depression try to break through here and there, uh, but it's nothing like it was. I know one thing I really have to do is deal with my baggage. I haven't seen a therapist since COVID came on the scene. One thing I want to get back in the habit of is setting aside time at the end of the night for meditation and cognitive behavioral therapy exercises. I used to do that all the time, but fell out of the habit for some reason. But I think that's enough of that. I just wanted to let you guys know where I was at. Hopefully that wasn't too grim. As I mentioned, I'm feeling significantly better.
So let's do some news stories, and I won't spend too much time on it, but I think I'd be remiss if I didn't at least mention the historic overturning of Roe versus Wade, and you might say why talk about that, but I think abortion in general falls within the wheelhouse of the show because often people's view of abortion is informed by their religious views. Generally speaking, you know, devout Christians tend to be pro-life, while secular types like myself tend to be pro-choice, although there are some exceptions. There are some atheists who are quote-unquote pro-life. I put pro-life in quotation marks because it seems to suggest that people on the other side are pro-death, uh, when for me at least, I think pro-choice is an apt, you know, description of my worldview. My own view on abortion is pretty complex or nuanced. I believe factually that abortion is the termination of a developing life, so in that sense it's inherently negative, and thusly I think the fewer abortions the better. Uh, but that being said, I still come down on the side of a woman's right to choose, and I think there's an almost cartoonish caricature that's embraced by some on the kind of right-wing Christian anti-abortion side, almost as if they think people take abortion lightly, perhaps even the women who get them, when as I've often said, I don't think anyone takes abortion more seriously than the women who face the difficult decision of whether or not to have one. And then there's the boogeyman of late-term abortion, which I don't even think is an actual medical term, but I believe it refers to abortions taking place during or after the late second trimester, or around the time of fetal visibility. And those only make up about 1% of abortions, as I understand it, and are usually done for medical reasons, like concern for the life of the mother, or because something's catastrophically wrong with the fetus. And it's also interesting to note that the great majority of abortions, 90-something percent, take place at or before 13 weeks. And here's an excerpt from a Washington Post article. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, about 1.3 of abortions were performed at or greater than 21 weeks of gestation in 2015. In contrast, 91.1% were performed at or before 13 weeks and 7.6% at 14 to 20 weeks. Point being that the majority of abortions take place pretty early on into pregnancy. Uh, but still, once again, you know, I think the fewer abortions, the better. Um, but I think the way to decrease the number of abortions should be through educating young people, uh, not by making them illegal. And on that note, getting back to the overturning of Roe versus Wade, what makes it such a big deal is that a woman's right to an abortion will no longer be constitutionally protected, and it'll now be up to the states. And we've already seen a number of red states putting these draconian um, anti-abortion laws into place, and it's only going to get uh, it's only going to get worse now. Uh, but I have to admit that on a personal level, this seems very surreal. I was born in the 70s, and so Roe versus Wade has been around as long as I can remember. So just in that sense alone, it seems world-changing. And then also, obviously, of course, because of how it sets back abortion rights. But I believe I said I wasn't going to spend too much time on that story, so let's move on. And those were just my kind of very basic, rough layman's thoughts on the whole thing. And so next, I was recently watching a Cult of Dusty live stream. 
uh, well, maybe almost a week ago now, and he covered a pretty wild story that I wasn't really seeing being covered anywhere else, with the exception of the Humanist Report, who I saw just uploaded a video about it a little bit ago. Um, so some of you might be familiar with Jesse Lee Peterson. The drunken peasants used to play clips of him on their show all the time. He's this African-American far-right pastor slash conservative talk or radio show host. And I know a white guy calling a black man an Uncle Tom might not sit well with some, but the guy's an Uncle Tom. If he's, you know, if he isn't, I don't know who is. He's constantly criticizing black people while praising the white man. And definitely not the sharpest knife in the draw, a bit of an absurd character. Uh, but he constantly spews far-right talking points, which has earned or garnered him some favorable attention from some on the far-right. And he's also rabidly homophobic and loves to call other people beta males. Are you beta male? Beta! Always questioning other men's masculinity or sexuality, etc. And you guessed it, gay scandal. There's a far-right Christian group called the Church Militant, and I guess they had an issue, if I understand correctly, with some of Jesse Lee Peterson's religious beliefs. Apparently, despite how outspokenly Christian he claims to be, he held, maybe still does, this fringe belief among believing Christians anyway that Christ didn't physically rise from the dead. It was more of a spiritual resurrection. And oddly enough, that was also the view of the late John Shelby Spong, an Episcopal bishop and author. He once debated William Lane Craig about the nature of the resurrection. It's on YouTube. A friend of mine bought me his book, Liberating the Gospels, for Christmas back in my early 20s. Um, but anyway, I guess that was at least part of the impetus for this group, the Church Militant, once again, producing and releasing this scathing documentary about Peterson entitled Amazing Disgrace. In it, they interview several men who claim Jesse Lee Peterson uh, groomed, I'll put groomed in quotes because these are grown men, or sexually harassed them, or that he had affairs or sexual relations with them or others. And they seem pretty credible. I think one of them had been his personal assistant or something uh, to that effect for decades. If true, obviously, the hypocrisy would be astounding, but he wouldn't be the first quote-unquote man of God who doth protest too much, you know, and ends up being exposed as a self-hating closet case, uh, shades of Ted Haggard. And then we have hate preacher Stephen Anderson. The drunken peasants used to cover him a lot, too. Uh, he's another doozy. He advocates for the death penalty for homosexuals, which I guess in fairness is in keeping with the Old Testament. <laughs> Gotta give him that. And I was just reading how his hateful rhetoric has actually gotten him banned from entering Ireland or uh, South Africa. Uh, probably other places, too. I didn't look uh, that deeply <laughs> into it. And I've often wondered if he's a closet case, too, uh, because he seems a little too obsessed with condemning homosexuality. But I also just read that apparently he has 12 children. Technically, he still could be a closet case, though. Uh, and I'm also I'm thinking about his wife. Imagine giving birth 12 times. Ugh. Does that take a toll on your body? I don't know. It seems like it would, but, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not a gynecologist or a woman, so, and uh, if she doesn't mind, why should I mind? 
I wonder if they'll all be, you know, successfully indoctrinated into their father's hateful strain of uh, Christianity or if any of them will, you know, break away. I know some of Fred Phelps' family, wow, a lot of alliteration there, ended up leaving the Westboro Baptist Church. Maybe a similar thing will happen here down the road. Who knows? We can hope. But Hemant Maida, formerly the Friendly Atheist, I'm not sure if he still calls himself that after switching from Patheos to Only Sky, but he publishes a lot of videos to his Twitter feed, and he recently published one of Steven Anderson. Uh, it's just a really quick clip, but in it, he states that he thinks only Christians should be allowed in government. So he basically wants a theocracy. I think our government should be run 100% by Christians, no Hindus allowed, no Muslims allowed, no atheists allowed. That, you know, I think that'd be great. You know, we're supposed to be a Christian nation here. Let's see, freedom of religion, the establishment clause, does any of that matter to him? Probably not. Um, and he says we're a Christian nation. Yet the Constitution never mentions Jesus Christ or the Bible, not once. Too bad we can't stuff him in a time machine so he could go back and have a long talk about religion with uh, Thomas Paine or Thomas Jefferson. I think pretty much any of the founding fathers would find his fund more alliteration, his fundamentalist uh, form of Christianity to be extreme. And then speaking of Hemant Maida, here's a story from Only Sky and it's dated June 17th. Gallup, Americans' belief in God just plunged to an all-time low. Every single subgroup was less likely to believe in God compared to just five years ago. A new Gallup poll out today finds that the percentage of Americans who believe in God is at an all-time low. In 2017, 87% of Americans said they believed in God. That number has now dropped to an astonishing 81%, according to the group's Values and Beliefs poll, which is all the more fascinating considering that the number hovered over 90% between 1944 and 2011, when there was no shortage of national crises. Keep in mind that 81% is the number across the board. It falls much further depending on the subgroup. Gallup found that while every single demographic has seen some drop in God belief, it's especially noticeable for people under 30, liberals, and Democrats. And I think the following may be an excerpt from Gallup, most other key subgroups have experienced at least a modest decline, although conservatives and married adults have had essentially no change. And this next part kind of uh, goes to what Hemant was just saying, kind of elaborates on that. The groups with the largest declines are also the groups that are currently least likely to believe in God, including liberals, 62%, young adults, 68%, and Democrats, 72%. Belief in God is highest among political conservatives, 94%, and Republicans, 92%, reflecting that religiosity is a major determinant of political divisions in the U.S. I could have told you that last part. Uh, anyway, and so I think now it returns back to uh, Hemet Mehta's commentary. These numbers reflect a trend we've been seeing for years. Fewer than half of all Americans now say they're members of a church, synagogue, or mosque. 
only about a third of Americans, 36%, say they have a quote-unquote great deal, or quote-unquote quite a lot, of confidence in organized religion. Meanwhile, a majority of Americans now say they harbor at least some doubt in God's existence. But polls like this are always popping up every now and again, and I think it's fun or interesting just to check out the latest numbers and statistics and see what can be inferred. And here, Hemin offers his own thoughts on what could be behind the decline, and so I'll read that now. What's the explanation for the more recent decline, though? Gallup doesn't get into that kind of analysis. But keep in mind that drop is far more significant for organized religion than the concept of God itself. People may be less likely to believe in a higher power today, sure, but a lot of those people just don't have any desire to belong to a religious institution. And why would they? Between evangelical churches turning into arms of the Republican Party, sex abuse scandals in Southern Baptist congregations and Catholic churches, the pandemic pushing us away from large gatherings, and religious groups eager to ignore the science and put members at risk, you'd have to be pretty damn devoted to your particular club to continue attending services week after week. It's much easier to connect with God on your own, and I think that would be like the so-called nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people who believe in some vague higher power or hold some kind of spiritual beliefs but don't go in for organized religion, etc. And he continues, if that's your thing, and easier still to ditch the concept entirely. Um, I don't know. Um, I think leaving behind the concept of God or trying to after being indoctrinated can be a lot easier said than done. It's something, you know, we all have to, whether or not there's a God, that's one of those big questions we all have to wrestle with personally for ourselves. And once again, he continues, given that young people are quitting God faster than most, and that it's a lot easier to leave a religion when you know people have already taken that step, this trend won't stop anytime soon. I suspect the percentage will get lower and lower until it eventually smooths out. It's not taking a temporary dip, only the climb back up in the future. And he's probably right, you know, if that's the way the trend is going, especially with younger people, then we're probably going to see things keep heading in that direction for some time. Uh, I hope so. I have no problem with people being religious. It's the fundamentalism and the rampant superstition that bothers me. But personally, selfishly, I would like to see a world where there's more uh, secularism and there's more of the so-called nuns. You know, people who maybe have their own spirituality or believe in some kind of higher power, but don't affiliate themselves with any kind of uh, organized religion. And the reason why I'm more kind of amenable to that kind of spirituality is I don't mind people believing whatever they want on their own. It's usually religious institutions that tend to be, uh, you know, oppressive. And so just one more fun little story. The summer solstice recently came and went, and I recently did that Valpurgis Night documentary, as I mentioned at the top of the show. I was almost going to try to do a follow-up doc on the summer solstice and the ancient traditions and customs and festivals surrounding it, but I just wouldn't have been able to get it out on time. 
Uh, but I've always been fascinated by Stonehenge, and I just wanted to briefly cover this little story about how recently thousands of people gathered at Stonehenge during this past summer solstice. And apparently it was the first time people were allowed to gather there, at least en masse, since the pandemic, I believe. And so I'll read a bit from this BBC article, and it's dated six days ago. Stonehenge, summer solstice, thousands welcome back celebrations. More than 6,000 people have gathered to watch the sunrise at Stonehenge for the summer solstice. It is the first time since the pandemic that the stone circles in Salisbury and Avebury have been open to the public for the event. Druids and pagans joined other visitors to make the longest day of the year at the ancient site. And there's a lot of quotations from attendees and that kind of thing. So I'll scroll down until the meat of the story continues. Stonehenge is built on the alignment of the midsummer sunrise and the midwinter sunset. On the summer solstice, the sun rises behind the heel stone, the ancient entrance to the stone circle, and rays of sunlight are channeled into the center of the monument. And it also says that people celebrated the summer solstice at Glastonbury Tor in Somerset as well. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, so, you know, I don't believe in the supernatural or anything, but I love ancient mysteries. I love things like Stonehenge. I have a soft spot for, um, for the pagans, for paganism. Um, so I just wanted to cover that little story. I thought it was pretty cool. All right, and with that, I'm going to call this episode a wrap. As always, thank you, everyone, for listening. You guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. You can follow the show on Twitter, even though I'm not on there much. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. And if you'd like to support the show monetarily, which is always greatly appreciated, you can go to patreon.com slash theweekendout and help support what I do here for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time.